Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Good to be back here on the podcast with you, Chris, and it is good to see you, my friend. How, good to see you too. Thank you. How, how are things on your side of the? I, I was going to say river, but you're not. You're on the same side of the river. Yeah, we so are. I could say on the same on the other side Western of Lake side of the Mississippi. There you go. How's say. your side of Lake Street? <laughs> is that is that fair? I'm having a great day, except I I pinched my finger on a stepladder hinge. You ever done that? Oof. You know those things you try to pull down to kind of oh, yeah. push out the A-frame, basically. You know, and man. Those things can like crack a walnut. I feel like <laughs> my finger got in there and uh, it didn't tickle. I'll say that. No. It, it didn't, it's still uh, attached though. That, that You run risks yeah. there of losing the limb right? if it gets stuck in that. Wow. <laughs> you too. Yeah, Ow. I think it, w- it could have been worse uh, looking back. I think I could have gotten more of it in there, but... Yeah, it didn't feel good. It actually, um, I want to mention this though, because it reminded me of, uh, I know you know uh, John Hendricks. Oh, I yeah, think yeah. Maybe more than I do, but um, he has a comic called The Holy Ghost. And uh, it's just uh, really insightful. And it reminded me of one he wrote um, about, it's basically a comic about this squirrel and then a ghost who's like this Holy Spirit figure. And this, it's this uh, kind of a philosophical, theological. <laughs> rumination comic, you know, it's really interesting. And the, there's this one where the squirrel has a cape on and he's just kind of, uh, sad about why God didn't make us heroes and super strong and, and having the power of flight and different things, things like this. And, and then he jumps off this cliff and try, tries to fly and doesn't and crashes to the ground. Now, on the way down, I think he says, but God instead made us a pile of goo, basically, or something like that. And belly flops on the ground. Uh, and then enter Holy Spirit kind of uh, sort of stage right kind of floats in and whispers to him when he's face down on the ground, whispers. It, it's almost like God uh, it wants to underlying fragility and kind of has a plan for fragility and, hmm. and that that's important to him, you know, or something like that. And just, uh, really like that. It was just a good, you know, kind of, uh, you know, underscore of grace. It was, it's a good reminder of these little paper cuts that we can get, you know, or these little pinched, uh, skin moments that aren't really that big a deal, but kind of, you know, collapse us to the floor in pain. <laughs> some, kinda, of us, yeah. some, yeah, some of us. Yeah, some of us. I mean, maybe just theoretically, maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. me this morning, but, um, but just how that reminds us, yeah, of our, of our dire need and how we're not the hero of the story. So, so it was a good, all that to say, it was a good moment. I don't always have those kind of, uh, you know, positive moments to my, um, my pinched finger, my pinched finger moments, but like the it, was, epiphany, yeah. it was, it was good. So, but yeah, yeah. but how are you brother? Yeah, we're, we're doing pretty well. I, I mean, speaking of squirrels, I guess uh, that makes me think of the demon bunnies that are devouring our plants. They're making our garden look like a pizza ranch at closing time. You know, the buffet line, like there's just, as things are starting to sprout now, we're seeing like a fourth of our bushes actually sprouting. And it's just killing me on the inside. Every single one 
of our bushes in different places around the house have been hit by these things. And I have no comic book or Holy Spirit epiphany on that. It just makes me go, Ugh. Why, is that, <laughs> why are things the way that they are? I have so many enemies, yes. furry ones as well. Yes. Let's, let, I'm reading imprecatory psalms <laughs> on yeah, these bunnies right go. now in our neighborhood. Yeah, I've so. been there. I can empathize. I've been there. Yeah, it's it's no fun. So, so. It's funny, but it's in the moment <laughs> not. So, uh, well, we're going to be hanging out in a, in a couple of places today and that uh, beginning with the Song of Solomon, uh, looking at chapter two specifically. And we'll say more about that in a second. But the other sections of scripture that we're going to be seeing are Psalm 77, 2 Corinthians 3, and our But What About section includes the imperatives in 1 Timothy 5, roughly verses 3 through 8. Um, but we'll begin with the, uh, the Song of Solomon, also called the Song of Songs, um, which is kind of an allude to just this is like the greatest poem kind of of all time. Uh, I don't know who labeled it that, but I think it's it's quite fitting. Um, it's about a husband and a wife, uh, Solomon and his bride. And the, that Song of Songs imagery is one that you, it kind of alludes to like a greatest hits, but it's a greatest of greatest hits. You can kind of think of that of your, of your favorite band having one of those. It's like, oh, I'd like to purchase that record. Um, people don't have records anymore. I'd like to download that on Spotify. There, there it is. There, there it is. Yeah, just don't uh, say CD. I that's think right. that's too, <laughs> it's like one, one year of history, basically. <laughs> I feel like those are in. But. <laughs> uh, and Charles Spurgeon said about this book in particular that, that surprised me. He said, if I were, were to only be able to have one book of the Bible with me on a desert island, it would actually be Song of Songs, uh, which is, yeah, if you think about it, it's like, man, I wasn't even thinking top five um, as, yeah. I, as I read that question. But the more I think about this book and even preparing to talk about it a little bit today, I'm like, this is a, a transforming book. Um, as Spurgeon also mm-hmm. says about this, it, it's a book of deep mystery, not to be understood except by the initiated. This book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and no one will ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat of it until he has been brought by Christ past the sword of the cherubim and led to rejoice in the love that has delivered him from death. Uh, really uh, layered imagery there from Spurgeon on this letter, but my, my favorite part of that is just this this idea of like, it kind of remains closed until Christ opens it. And then this letter becomes something that you can never get enough from. It always has layers beneath the layers about the transformative power of the way Jesus pursues his bride, uh, which is, which kind of brings us to the last place of introducing this letter. Because again, if you've had experience with Song of Songs, it's a difficult read. So it does need a little bit more legroom getting this thing off the ground. Um, and one of the debates that surrounds it is what is this actually about? And especially in the last 300 years, um, some, his, some, some ways of interpreting have kind of taken a, a left turn where they should have gone right in making it more about marriage and less about more of a zoomed out picture of God's covenant relationship with the church, covenant marriage with the church. Uh, certainly, this is how the church has been interpreting it for thousands of years, you know, pre-enlightenment. Um, and that, that's really worth kind of circling and coming back to, because if you don't, if you don't start or even end with this interpretation that this is about God's relationship with his church and his love for his bride, then you're, you're going to have a hard time actually understanding what God is trying to say in it. And it's probably going to become a read that you're just like, well, I don't think I want to pick this up again. So with that in mind, I think we're able to turn to songs, uh, chapter two verses, what would we say? Eight to 17 and expect to find the great bridegroom, uh, namely Jesus Christ, 
teaching us about himself and wanting us to see, see some things about his work uh, despite our failures. Maybe it was a good place to start. It's great. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the ways that we allow Christ to open this letter uh, for us or to unseal the scroll uh, to kind of borrow from some imagery in Revelation 5, you know, uh, is to just let him uh, be the singer, you know, like we've been saying in the Psalms a lot in the, on this podcast that it, it's really his songbook, uh, you know, especially David's words, but really all of the words, uh, they, they belong to him somehow, you know? And so I think this is the song of songs. It's the song is, uh, as you were saying, that all other songs somehow come underneath and, or maybe find their ultimate source and meaning from. And so when, when we ask the question, uh, how to see Christ in this book, which is um, always the best question to ask, we, we see him in the husband, we see him in, in the Solomon figure. Uh, and we see him in the one that Jesus himself says he is the second version of in Matthew 12, 42, I believe it is, that something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, and so like, I'll just read from verses eight and nine, where it says, listen, my beloved, look, here he comes leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved's like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows and peering through the lattice. And so when she, the bride, looks at, at him and says this, it's really a picture of the church's adoration of Christ. Uh, or when he's talking, it's a picture of Christ's uh, adoration of us and his, and his love uh, for us. And so in these couple little verses then, and many times throughout the book, we see a picture of the Christ figure overcoming obstacles. Like in these couple of verses, he's leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. He's peering through the windows and the lattice. These are all obstacles, right? They're, um, they're things that keep her away from him. It's And she's in her home and she's waiting for him. And, and he's the one who's moving. He's incurring the suffering, you could say, by uh, getting blisters on his toes and getting the muscle ache from leaping over mountains. And so we get gl glimpses of a love that leads to sacrifice, like Christ would later come uh, to, to, to do for us and ultimately sing these same words uh, over over us. Or if it's, again, the bride's words, it's, it, it, it's our visual of him. It's what we say back to him in praise and the thanksgiving for be the one that does all the heavy lifting when it comes to saving us from our sins. It's so cool too, to see the ways that, uh, and I've heard you describe this in the past where, where some of the language of like, who's talking right now is intentionally even muddied. And depending on your translation, they'll actually label it differently. Like, Oh, this, this seems like the groom. This seems like the bride. Uh, and I think there's actually beauty in that fact in and of yeah. itself, that it's hard to tell who's talking because that's what the picture of this love actually looks like. And anyone who's been married for more than a minute knows that the more time you spend together, the more you're actually able to start to think like them. And uh, you can think of, I actually just watched that the series Beef, um, which we got an article coming out uh, on it pretty, pretty soon here. And um, without spoiling anything, there's a picture of love in it that's very surprising and unexpected. And it's even beyond a romantic love. Mm. And they, they do this really genius uh, shooting of the scene where they're actually, you're not sure who's talking. And it's a, it's a guy and a gal and, and you're just kind of like, what is, what are they trying to communicate? And my mind jumps to this, that you're just like, I'm not even sure who's, who's the one communicating as these, uh, as this poem is being written, which is beautiful in of itself. Yeah. Another verse worth uh, zooming in on is verse 14 here in, in chapter two. And it says this, oh, my dove in the cleft of the rock in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And just to pause on that verse and, 
and kind of say, where have we seen imagery like this? There's both a reaching backwards and a reaching forward that's taking place. The backwards is certainly this, this cleft of the rock image of desiring to see a lover's face sounds almost verbatim what we see happening in Exodus 33, where, where Moses is up on the mountain, literally hidden in the cleft of a rock after saying to God, I want to see you. I want to see your face. Now show me your glory. And God's response is, you can't, in essence. You can't see my face because of sin marring this world and marring my relationship to you. If you were to see my face right now, it would result in your destruction. But what I'm going to do is I am going to hide you in this rock. I'm going to walk by you. You're going to be able to see uh, me from behind, and that will be radiant enough for you right now as this picture of the law. Fast forward now, jump ahead to the New Testament, and we find the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ coming with an intended purpose of showing us the face of God. Uh, you have several places, actually. I think First John is one of them where I actually see God face to face will be transformed. But the question is how? What is going to allow us? If Moses can't even see God face to face, what is going to allow us to see God face to face and live? And even to not only to live, but do so from a place of desirous love, yearning, desiring to see God face to face. And then hearing you can. And I think the imagery of the cleft rock is helpful. We've we've pointed out, um, or maybe we haven't even looked at it on this podcast, but Corinthians certainly reads a rock in the Old Testament, uh, surprisingly as Jesus Christ himself, right? Like if the rock Moses strikes, the apostle Paul's just like, yeah, we all know that's Jesus, right? And it's like, what? Hold on. I got to, I got to double click on this one. You got to, you got to show me your work on this. I'd, I'd love to see a little bit more of how that works out. Uh, but if we follow the apostle Paul's logic here, we have a rock being cleft or cut or harmed so that we're able to stand in this rock and see a lover face to face. And, and so the, the, the connection here to Christ dying on a cross or being cut open for us and us existing in his cuts, ex- us being covered by his blood that's flowing from this, these cuts is what actually opens the door to us to seeing God face to face and not only living, but loving, being so excited and transformed from the inside out by Jesus himself being cut open and saying, you can see me and and now live and even love. Uh, there's a remarkable uh, place to just slow down and go, holy cow, Jesus is here in, in a surprising fashion, bringing us way closer than Moses even got to up on that mountain. It is very Thomas-like, isn't it? Uh, Disciple Thomas-like, where Jesus says to Thomas, place your hand in my scars. Uh, you know, when you think about these, th- this poetry and a cert- certainly Moses' first instance of this, which was partial, as you were saying, but, but the song here especially is very Thomas-like. You know, it's kind of like Thomas is entering the cleft, the ultimate cleft uh, in, in the rock of Christ when he places his hand inside the, the nail holes in, in Christ's hands and his, uh, his opened side. So helpful. And now let's turn to uh, Psalm 77. This is the psalm that disproves the footprints in the sand uh, poem, if you've ever <laughs> been on the receiving end Heresy. of that. <laughs> well, verse 19, I mean, it says your footprints were not seen. So I don't know why we've ever made that. Po- no, I actually kind of, I, I do like that poem, but anything that gets published that widely, mm. we just have skepticism towards <laughs> I digress. Psalm 77 is written by a Levite, a guy named Asaph. And uh, what's helpful to see this is, so Asaph is writing from a place of troubled distress, which is a picture of 
you know, all of our lives, whether it's bunnies eating our garden or, um, you know, finger pain or all of the things that wake us up in the middle of the night that show we are not a free people, right? No one's just free to choose to not think of all of the things that give them anxiety, right? Life just consists of anxiety, distress, and trouble. And the Psalms are showing this is true. This is, this is what's real for all of us. But what makes this psalm so interesting is that it is uh, teaching us where to look in the midst of distress and trouble. And for a guy like Asaph, who again, he's a Levite, which means he's a tri- he, he belongs to the tribe of the law. Expectation would be, okay, God's given us the law. And so in the midst of trouble, what do I got to do? Where do I got to turn? I got to turn to the law and I got to double down and do it and tell others to do it. And we'll be a team that's, you know, moving from strength to strength. And surprisingly, this psalm, or unsurprisingly in light of the whole story, does not do that. Instead, the psalm itself looks at the finished work of God in the midst of trouble. And this Levite, this lawbringer is actually saying, you know what? I'm not going to look at the law. That's not the place that I'm turning as I'm in the midst of distress. Instead, I'm going to remember you, God, while I groan. I'm going to meditate and my spirit, while my spirit is growing faint, not on what I should be doing, but on who you are and what you've done, specifically in the work of the Exodus. So there's, why don't I pause there and let you jump in before I eat all the meat on the bone? Yeah, so it's, it's his work, right? It's him himself, and, and it's his work, which is, uh, which is fascinating, right? It's so simple and yet so hard to do when we suffer to get outside of ourselves sometimes and to think about God and what he's done for us apart from, even apart from the act of healing whatever suffering we're currently going through, which is interesting. It's a, it's, this, is, this for the Psalms would have been a past event, right? The Exodus, he's looking back to hundreds of years before this that he's, that he's thinking about. And so I, I think that as you look at the Bible, the greater flow of scripture, um, one of the kind of predominant themes you see is that the Bible's a tale of two exoduses. There, there's the first physical one that was associated with Moses and the 10 plagues and coming up out of Egypt. And then there's a second one that the prophets are looking ahead to that they're predicting uh, in between the Testaments, essentially kind of serving as that bridge. And then when Jesus comes, he, he enacts it. He's the second greater Moses. He's the greater deliverer. He's He's the one who uh, comes to save us from our sins, not just Egypt this time, but the one who comes to save us out from uh, a greater kind of oppression, slavery to doing wrong and, and doing right for the wrong reasons and thinking we're our own gods and that that's enough and that, that, that that's okay. And so you see that all over the New Testament. Uh, and, and so I think in this psalm, then the pattern you see is a worshiper looking back to the past uh, saving act of God, which for us then is to look back to the second Exodus, where Jesus died on that cross, and with His spilt blood, He that He poured out, uh, even incurring a lot of the the plagues on the cross, where it, everything went dark, which was the ninth plague, where the the plague of darkness, as well as the tenth plague, the the death of the firstborn, uh, even that that first plague of of blood, uh, water being turned to blood. You see uh, blood and water pour out of His side after He dies. Oh, there's a lot, a lot of the plagues are being revisited on the cross as well to remind us that, that this is ultimate deliverance. The first one's physical and partial. This one is the, the better one. It's coming for all nations, uh, not just not just Israel. Wow. Well, turning to 2 Corinthians 3, we, uh, we're arriving at, uh, man, a, a definitely a high point of the New Testament, or at least a clarifying point of the New one of many where the Apostle Paul is going to be looking back on the big picture storyline of Scripture and 
bringing some things to bear on how to read it that in that just enact clarity. Like he's just he's putting glasses on for us and going, "Do you see that this has always been the story?" It's one of the reasons why we stress such a two covenant storyline reading in this podcast as passages like this and many others. Uh, but this one is it's so good. And and one of the phrases that I, I it just struck me afresh as I was reading it this time through was the beginning of verse 13 in 2 Corinthians 3 where he just says, "We are not like Moses." right? Like this whole chapter can just be titled that. We are not like Moses. Those who are operating under the new covenant, the form and fashion of our ministry is definitively defined by not being like Moses. There's so many ways that we could draw that out in this passage. And we'll talk about a few of them, but in and of itself, it's just this very simple statement. We are not like Moses. Mm, what God so has good. brought through Christ yeah. is different. It's, it's, a, it's in opposition to, and it's it's antithetical to what Moses was doing. It's a continuation of the story and God had a very specific purpose for Moses and it was good. But the form of ministry under the new covenant is definitively not like Moses. Yeah, I, think, I think that's a good like uh, kind of call for nuance moment too, right? Where we, and we, we just said Jesus is like Moses and that, that he was an enactor of another Exodus and in the Bible, like in Hebrews three links them in that, in that regard. And yet you see all over the new, the new Testament too, Jesus is trying to distance himself from Moses as well. Like, in, I think it's John one seventeen where Jesus says, Moses brought the law, but I'm bringing grace and truth, or it might be John's commentary, but same, same thing, you know? And so you see kind of both going on and it's, it's the covenantalness that's, that's so different. It's the, it's what is he actually bringing in terms of, uh, the, the, the medicine, the cure, you know, the, the, the stipulations between God and sinners. And we, and, and you're right. We find in the new Testament, it's better because there isn't any law. There is no stipulation. There is no do this and then you will live. It's simply his blood that, uh, that serves as, um, as the ultimate, uh, go between. And so there's, a, there's like, a, like we said, there's a few ways to nuance this out and maybe we'll just follow the logic of the passage beginning in the verse, uh, verse uh, let's say five verses, there's this commentary on uh, letters of recommendation. What do we make of that? Yeah, I like how he starts because it's important to remember in 2 Corinthians that Paul has critics. Uh, they look at him, I think, as kind of a almost beginner apostle or he he's good for the basics, you know, and, and now these uh, so-called, I think Paul is kind of uh, tongue in cheek and kind of ribbing on them a bit, but he's, he's calling them super apostles as though they kind of had capes and that they were super strong and taller than he was and better orators and better looking. But but Paul is saying um, that's actually not really a Christian way to think, you know, in, in a lot of his letters to kind of write back to that and poke back at it. And so in the first five verses, which I should, I should read some of this, at least he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we like some, like some people, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of a living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so I think what Paul is saying here, quite simply, is that if you want a letter of recommendation, if you want some kind of thing that shows my authority as an apostle, it's you. It's all you Christians who constitute this church now that I came and preached the gospel to. The fact that you're saved, like that's my letter. And in and through that, Paul is saying, the beauty of it is Paul is saying, 
the letter of my rec- of my recommendation is something that I could never do myself and didn't do. Like the only thing on my resume, the only thing on my letter of recommendation is a miracle that, that God performed completely apart for me. Maybe he used me and he did, but I'm just a conduit. And he, and he did all the work and all the heavy lifting himself. And so, which again, it's, it's a ministry kind of metaphor in one sense, but he's basically saying, all that is to my credit is grace. All that is to my credit is God using uh, a dead man like me uh, to show himself glorious and powerful, using a weak individual who can't talk that well. I'm pretty good at writing, but I'm not a good speaker, uh, Paul, uh, Paul says in his letters. He's using that type of individual to show that it's by grace we're saved, uh, not by works. And, and at that point, we think, but is, th- is this really a gra- kind of a law grace moment? Uh, Paul makes it clear. If that's our question. Paul actually dials it up. He makes it very clear. Uh, he says, actually, what I'm talking about is tablets of stone versus a love letter from Jesus. Tablets of stone, which refer to the Ten Commandments, the law, uh, contrasted with the working of the Spirit of God completely in a one-way manner. Like those two things are different uh, covenantally. And then he goes on from there. And he goes on from there to actually say, God has made us competent as ministers of this new covenant. It's not us becoming competent. It's God making us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not like the old, which is, it's not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Then he goes on to describe the differences between these. And just to list out a few, I mean, so we just heard the old covenant that which is marked by the law or the 10 commandments, it kills while the new gives life and it's by the spirit. The old is temporary. It's, it's passing. The new is eternal. It's lasting. The old is veiled. The new is unveiled. The old is marked by slavery. The new is, uh, is that of freedom. The old is a picture of toil and vanity. And the new is a transformative power, specifically through beholding. This whole ministry is based on uh, beholding grace and the work that God has done for us, for foolish dead people uh, like you and I. That's that's profound. It actually makes me think of, um, did you catch last fall when William Shatner, the, the OG Captain Kirk actually went to space. Yeah, I saw that. So he, he literally goes up to space. Um, I think it was sponsored by Jeff Bezos and comes down and everyone's like excited to hear from him. And, and he was filled with uh, grief and emotion. And he kept saying that up there is death, right? Like just up as he, as he ascended on high to space, he saw nothing but death and looked down and saw the earth and it was filled with life and abundance. Then he, he continues actually just pointing up and saying death and then back down at the earth and going life. Then Basil's kind of like, dude, what, okay, calm down. <laughs> but it, it serves as this profound illustration of what Paul is unfolding here, namely that this old covenant, this thing that we thought would bring about such uh, sustenance and security for life, anything that we pick up and do a, an ideal version of ourself. And if you do this, then you will have life mentality. What a picture, right? Going to space, the next bastion of exploration that we uh, as a society keep coming back to. He goes up there and he goes, no, I've been there. I can tell you it's nothing but death and emptiness. But down here in real life, Jesus has come and, and died for yourself as you are right now. And he's bringing about the form of life that you can't bring for yourself. This is what the apostle Paul is arguing. This new covenant marked by the foolishness of God, marked apart from anything that we have done uh, by grace as a gift, this is the life that Jesus has died for. And it's here. It's among us. And it's amazing to behold. 
Love it. Yeah. Moses goes up too, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's the thing is there's an ascension idea with the law. And then I think of Paul, Paul is saying here, I didn't do that. Like if my, if you want to know my story, it's getting knocked on my back by, by Jesus. When I was on my way to kill Christians, like Jesus just showed up to me and I got low. Like I got, I got on the ground and that's what I needed to, to understand and experience is the law brings this call to ascend like Moses and to go up, but it actually brought death. And I think we come to, to learn this as Christians that, you know, we, we can miss God on the ascent if we're, if we're, if we're not careful, if we're reading the Bible wrong or understanding God wrong or understanding salvation wrong, we're going to try to climb almost all the time and we're going to miss him up there because he's not up there. He's come down. He's always coming down. And so it makes sense that the apostle that Paul is writing along, along these lines, not just his own testimony and story, how he converted, but like his, his whole point here in Second Corinthians 3 in context is that God descends. And that's a greater kind of glory, actually, when God comes down, becomes like us to die in our place. Yeah, one of the, one of the places that becomes a danger of missing God in the ascent is when we're reading imperatives in the New Testament. There's a tendency uh, within all of us, because we all have the old Adam, you know, still living in us, uh, even though he's dead, his power has been lost for those who are in Christ. He's still alive in one sense, in that he's fighting against the things of the Spirit. And and so when we read things like imperatives in the New Testament, that is any type of instruction or uh, any of the apostles saying, hey, I think this is a good idea for you. This would be wise for you to do. There's a tendency to connect this to the law somehow and make it sound like you need to do this in order to live. One of those places is our but what about passage for today, and that is 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8. And uh, if you're a new time listener, or just to remind you, our but what about section is where we we just take on a, maybe a less clearer part, especially of the New Testament, and just ask, if this is true, if God is really telling this story about what he has done uh, by grace through faith, completely apart from works, completely apart from what we've done, then how do we make sense of this passage? This seems to fly in the face of that. And uh, this one came from a friend and uh, specifically just thinking like, what do we do with this? There's some strong warnings in here uh, in the midst of instruction. And so how do we interpret it? And this is Paul writing to Timothy uh, about instructions for the church. And basically in these uh, verses, he's describing taking care of widows over and over again. And then we have verse eight, which I think really hangs people up, which is anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, to arrive at meaning in this passage, especially in light of the great story of Scripture, we do have to first zoom in on the context of the paragraph itself. So this, this letter is written by Paul to Timothy, as I said, but it's about how to lead the church, which is also known as the body of Jesus. And so Jesus is really interested in making sure we understand what the church is about and how it is to look. So all of these instructions are about the bride and body of Jesus and what he wants it to look like to a watching world. It's a place where widows and uh, small people who are forgotten about by society, by society, you know, the last, the least, the lost, the little, the lifeless, like we've mentioned on previous episodes, would be not only recognized, but they would be a part of the team. They would be people who are serving um, and being cared for by the church because God cares about these individuals and God sees that we are those types of individuals. So that's, a, I think, the first thing to see, but maybe you can comment a little bit on, as we zoom out, I mean, we're in a letter that's only, I think it's only five chapters. And so he's dedicating almost an entire half a chapter, maybe a little bit more on these very specific instructions about widows and provision for relatives. 
why would this be here and how do we make sense of it in light of the gospel? Yeah, I think the, the big answer to that is that because we're all widows, you know, and I, there's a, I have a quote here from Cassiodorus, who is a, a sixth century church leader who said, the church is called a widow because she's bereft of worldly protection and has placed her hope in her heavenly bridegroom, who has transformed her error into uprightness, her cruelty into devotion and her frailty into total constancy. So I kind of like that idea of, of just how, like looking at, you know, widows are, you know, we're not all widows physically, but we all are spiritually. And so I think when Paul's looking at the church, he wants the church to look and kind of behave in a way that would resemble the gospel. You know, so when there's care happening for a physical widow, like put on display is the care that Jesus gives to uh, spiritual widows, which is all of us. All of us are devoid of what we need. We've all been left alone. We all are impoverished. We all have, we're all in this hopeless state. And so I think like the divine side to this will be to look at Paul more like God the Father and Timothy like Jesus. And then we are like the Ephesians, like the, the church he was pastoring. We're, we're like the widows of the, of maybe of, of the Ephesian church, but we're like, we are the whole church. And I think in a lot of ways that the ultimate kind of divine greater meaning here is that we're on the receiving end of this. And if that's the case, then we're less crushed by verse eight. I mean, there can still be a good warning there for Christians, you know, to look at their heart and if they've been impacted by the gospel of grace, you know, to the point where they want to reflect that, that, that that's, that, that's all good and well. But I think the, the broader thing here is none of us have really done that perfectly and, and we never will. And so in order for it not to be a board to kind of like crush our head with, it, it becomes a grace and we see Jesus in it. Like he is the one who is obedient to the father. He's the one who looked out for his relatives and we're his brothers and sisters, right? When he, he made us that we were formerly enemies. Now we have been made a brother and a sister. We, we're the relatives of Christ now, co-heirs with him through his shed blood. His work alone has made us that, not our law-keeping efforts. And so that's the greatest story of all time. And I think that's the story that really gets Paul up in the morning, the apostle. That's what that's what Timothy, what, what his heart is beating to here. And as readers, we need to ultimately uh, remember that. So that passages like this don't become something that we're ascending too far with, but we're allowing to come down the mountain to us as a love letter uh, from Christ uh, to us. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod.